Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unnamed and Untamed. We have Dr. Megan on here for part two, going over um, different fat loss surgeries, correct? That's kind of what we're going to focus on today. Um, I think we'll just see where the conversation goes. But to start us off, we're going to do our peach and pit. So, Sonia, do you want to start it off? Okay. (laughs) How was your week? Um, my week was really good. What's been going on. Um, I just got back from LA a couple days ago. I'm like, you ever feel like you're not even sure where you are, like where you've been. Yeah. <laughs> I know I travel a lot, but I'm starting to just be over it. But, um, I just got back from LA and it was actually like a really good trip. We went down and like saw my family and it was actually like a lot of fun. Cause like, you know, I'm kind of a weird soul. And, um, it was really good for my boyfriend to like go down with me and like, he met my folks, like he had met them before, but to like be with them, you know, for like a week. And he's like, it all really just makes sense. Like, you know, like why you're weird, you know, and not like a weird, like my family's crazy. And so therefore like I have emotional attachment issues, like, no, I'm just kind of weird. And like, I say weird stuff and I do weird stuff. And my family's the same way. They're like my mom just like anything at any time will come out of her mouth, like zero filter in like a really fun way. So that was cool. And, um, I don't really, I mean, like, uh, I just got home and I'm not going to eat them just in case Austin's listening. I don't think he listens to our podcast. This would be the one, but only when he, this is the one he's going to listen to. Yeah. 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 But Austin's my coach, but, um, but there's a place here. So macaroons are my jam because they're gluten-free. Like I love macaroons. They're like my go-to and there's a place here called lady. Um, and I, they might be international or like national. I don't really know, but they're here and they're like a mega big deal, but they're fucking pricey. They're like two fifty a cookie. Like who eats a cookie too? They're literally out of one that cookie. Yeah. Little. They're little. Yeah. And so they posted a thing online today and they were like, um, Hey, you know, we are getting rid of like old batches. So if you want them, just show up. So here I am in my pajamas and my slippers first thing in the morning, showing up at Lady Yum, like ringing their doorbell, like looking half homeless, like give me free cookies. You know, like I'll call my boyfriend. I was like, maybe if you go down there too, like we might get two boxes. <laughs> so I have never even had me. a macaroon. I'm probably going to hate y'all. No, stop. They're and I'm literally like the province, like Quebec is all French and I've never, I've been to France, never had that. That's heartbreaking for me. I need you to like go try one and then they just look tasteless. They look like they just puffed hard air. Dude, my (laughs) heart is broken for you. You should do a live (laughs) macaroon tasting. It's like having sex without an orgasm. That's how no, I feel. It just looks yeah. like a, like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. No, There's like wrong. eye daggers going through right now. I know my, well, I'm getting flush right now. <laughs> I feel like I want to send you some for the holidays, but I don't know if they'll let me across that border and you have them there. I, yeah, we do. Like I We're clearly need to, to the bottom of out. I'm writing a note. <laughs> Yeah, no. You're going on my notepad for the day. I don't know if you guys have this of like things to do. Yeah. Um, what's going on with you guys? Meredith, how's your life? 
My life is good. I was actually having to think, I was like, what is a pit? But I do have one. Yeah. Um, everything is honestly pretty good. I was just telling the, the ladies beforehand, I feel like I've just had a good day, good communication with clients. Um, yeah, and that's just a positive thing. Now the pit for me was training pit. I hit my first kind of wall in 20 weeks and that, yes, okay, fine, 20 weeks, I get it, whatever. My coach, he already, like, he's already had the talk, but still, this is why coaches need coaches because it pissed me off. I'll be honest. I went in for my squat day um, on Monday, was supposed to hit a certain weight for three reps of three, no big deal. I have had this weight on my back before, should have been no problem. Didn't happen. Like, I mean, didn't happen bad, like by three inches didn't happen and was not going to happen progressively. And then I went in for my bench day today and he said, you know, feel it out. And if it's what it is, then we're going to deload and went in and I was like, I looked at the weight and I was like, yeah. Oh yeah. Looking handsome. Mm -mm." Got underneath the bar. First rep was awesome. Paused. Yes. Second rep. I was like, like, it's like that moment. I was like, oh shit, oh shit, I'm going to die. Today is the day I'm going to die. And it just went downhill from there. So guess who gets to deload? Me. You have a spot. Did you have a spot? I did. Yeah, I had a spot. Have you ever, okay. Have you guys ever done that where you are underneath the bar and you do not have a spot? Oh yeah. 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 I've been that person. Well, see, and that's what how my first set was good, but I was like, okay, this feels good. But I knew that if I went for my last rep, I would die without a spot. Like that was clear, but I was like, okay, but with the spot, sometimes it just happens that someone just stands above you and literally like Shira comes out of like your body and you, yeah. it's like easy. Yes. They didn't even need yes. them. So I was yeah. like, okay, get a spot and then let's go one rep. And that was it. I was like, if this person was not here, I literally would have died. Like it would have been over. So when here I was we are going through my gut stuff. I, 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 I track my training and I like wrote myself like a nice progressive linear low, like a just nice, you know, and every single week, my weight went down every single week. I was okay. So like squatting like 145 and then go hit it again. Just, just the same weight. Nope. Now I'm at 135 the next week. Now I'm at one. Like I just, I couldn't I literally was like at a certain point where I was like, I'm just not even going to do this. It doesn't feel safe. Like I just, (laughs) and I was so bloated. I'd get to the bottom of my squat and my belt would, you know, when the Velcro Velcro rips and you're at the bottom, you're like, "Ah." (laughs) so full disclosure, I do not, I don't use a belt. I haven't used a belt. So I will, I will, I will, I'm hoping someday I will, you know, potentially get to that point, but like right now, yeah, not, but yeah, that After sucks. Having like, a baby, I just like, feel like I have more control when I sure. do that. It helps me activate my core a little bit more. That's, yeah. it's so funny. Like that's actually something that I have had to work so much on. Cause I had so many surgeries in such a short amount of time. Yeah. It didn't even clue phone to me, you know, that that would matter. Um, but, obviously it is. Um, so yeah, I hear you, but that was my pit 20 week progression was just going awesome. Last week I hit my deadlift. Like I had a 20 pound PR. Don't know where that came on, but that literally was it like that, like sent me over the edge and I was done. So did you do pelvic floor work to kind of rehab from that? I didn't, I didn't, but now thinking we should have a episode on like a pelvic floor PT. 
Yeah. So that's yeah, actually, I have one. That's like something that, uh, like, so my strength coach, Paul, he was on a previous episode. That is something. So since I've been working with him, that is stuff that he, like, he has been programming in like direct core work. And then like, anti-rotation stuff just to help with my core. And I think that's why mm-hmm. I progressed for so long and so you know hard, like way past, like I had a year goal. I was like, you know, for my year, one year goal, I want it to be this. And I hit my one year goal in eight weeks. So wow. now it's, now it's like, it's here. So my first deload, it sucks. I don't like it, but it is. You know what it reminds is. me of? It's like when you reverse diet for the first time and you lose weight and then you reverse yeah. diet for the second time and you gain weight and you're like, wait a minute. Hold on. This, this doesn't feel right. the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, what about you? Um, I would say, I would say my peach for the last week was Nicole's wedding and that just going the day going so well. And then shameless plug. I feel like my maid of honor speech, like, I think I nailed it. Like, (laughs) I think it was like 10 out of 10, like everyone clapped, everyone was laughing. I will say though. And again, because my coach is not listening to this, hopefully, (laughs) I went back to the bar. To get, it's totally fine. I went back to the bar to get some water before my speech, and he's like, "Oh, gee, he's like your speech. He's like, you want something a little stronger." So I had a, I did have a shot of tequila, but it was like a small, like an extra small. How'd you shot. feel? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like a, it's like a mouth rinse. I feel fine. It helped, and I gave him a little shout out at the beginning of my speech. So that um. <laughs> That, I mean, I live to tell the tale <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I guess pit. Ooh. Okay. So I have, I do have this thing where I procrastinate on things until like her speech, like the wedding speech, I was on my, on the phone with my sister for an hour beforehand, but, or the day before to like finalize it. <laughs> but, um, I have a big presentation on Saturday and I'm like three slides in. So. Oh, you'll, yeah. you'll crush You're going to crush it. I saw that dude. I'm so excited for you. I go, I do well off adrenaline, you know? <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. I'm like, I don't really have anything. Put me up on stage and give me a microphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which actually is kind of all of us. And I think that's why we've always done well and like put us on a live and like, whatever. It yeah. Depends. <laughs> Yeah. Dr. Megan, what about you? Pitches, pits, and <laughs> uh, well, before I, lost that, I totally second, third, and fourth doing the pelvic floor stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. An episode on it. I think that is so overlooked. Um, we don't pay any attention to it. I come from a family of women with just inherently weak pelvic floors. Like I haven't been able to jump on a trampoline since I was like 15 years old. And then you throw having a baby into it. And I went to go see a pelvic floor physical therapist like twice, but then they wanted you to come like three times a week at like 10 AM. And I was like, I have this thing called a job, which is how (laughs) I pay for the pelvic floor physical therapist. So I can't really do that. So use like the weights. I just got, um, like I'm big on like buying new fun things, but like, I just got these weighted Kegel balls Mm -hmm. and they vibrate in different pulses. So like they're for pleasure, but also what they do is like, they keep you like, remind you to like stay active to like hold it in almost like doing like controlled Kegels. Mm -hmm. And they also have that app now too, where it's like, it just goes in you and it like 
it vibrates and then you squeeze it vibrates and then you squeeze and it like you can play games so you'll have your phone here and it's almost like frogger you know like you squeeze to move it and it helps you work your pelvic floor and your and your kegel muscles that's awesome yeah i actually have a lot of clients right now that i'm referring out to do pelvic floor work so Mm -hmm. i think that would be an awesome episode Yeah. Yeah. And the, the one last thing I'll say about this, I don't want to belabor it, but one of the things that I learned in actually like having a baby and stuff, like my Kegels that I can do are amazing. Like I can stop my pee midstream and walk away. Yeah. It's your, but it was my learning how to like totally relearning how to breathe and contract with exercise. That was the one thing where I was like, God, I totally underestimated how challenging that is. And you have to be really committed to it because you have to relearn how to like breathe and tuck things in after exercise. Anyways. Okay. Yeah. Do you so, run too, Megan? You're a runner, right? Yes. And I, yeah, so that's even, yeah. <laughs> just learning how to rebreathe as a runner through that whole process has to have been like probably still a daily task. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm admittedly not as committed to it as I should be. So yeah. Yeah. But my peach and pit. So my peach was, we had Halloween and it was a fantastic weekend and the weather was freaking amazing. And my kid was dressed up as a hot dog and she was so cute. And she had like the time of her life and like watching her like bebop around eating candy, going crazy, getting candy wasted and hanging out with her friends was like the funnest thing ever. Um, my pit is there's, <laughs> I could do a whole episode on that right now, but <laughs> my MA that my medical assistant that's been with me for, I think like only two months, um, she put in her two week notice and that sucks because she has been instrumental in my transgender and my top surgery patients and has really like taken the reins because anything that involves insurance is just, it's so much more inherently complicated and no one in the office really wants to touch insurance. And she has just really worked on it. So I'm just really nervous about when I can get somebody in here again, that can really help those patients and help me get them approved and scheduled. So that kind of sucks, but it's the best for her. Is it somebody that would be like medical scheduling, like that kind of person? Or is it a medical assistant? No, it's a medical assistant because she's really, her job description is really to be kind of my right hand person. So she sees all my consults before I see them. She is, we were training her on how to scrub. So ideally it would be somebody who would be my scrub um, and then just really help with all my patients. And, you know, part of that is my insurance top surgery patients. So yeah. So if you guys know of anybody. (laughs) I might, I might actually, I we'll touch base after. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. So let's kick it off, dude. So I guess like one of the things that we were all talking about, I think at the end of the episode, or maybe we were offline. And one of the things that we're seeing everywhere, and now it's all over my Instagram is these Brazilian butt lifts and lipo 360 and the expect almost like the, I sent the picture to my friends, like, how are we even supposed to compete? Cause the waists are like snatched and the butts are like giant, but there's like beyond, the snatched. Are, are beyond, snatched. beyond snatched and the arms are like thin and feminine as they say it, which I'm like, whatever the fuck that means. So it's right. like this completely unrealistic expectation, unless you are genetically just very, very gifted to have no waist, a giant, butt, zero cellulite, thin legs and thin arms. But 
we wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, have Dr. Megan cover, like what exactly lipo is, what the Brazilian butt lift is, who would be a candidate and what are realistic expectations to it? And what are some of the pros and cons to expect with that? Because it is part of it is a fat transfer. So what does that look like with fat gain and fat loss? And, you know, that's kind of the agenda today. And Megan, I'll just kind of let you jump in and at where you think we should start with this today. Yeah. So basically just kind of briefly going over liposuction, because I think if you understand the way that the body kind of manages fat and what lipo does, it helps to kind of dispel some of the, the misconceptions about it. So basically, you know, your body has fat cells and by the time that you are around adolescence, you pretty much are at a steady state for the number of fat cells that you have. So, you know, in terms of number, it's pretty consistent. So when we do liposuction, what we do is we go in and we take out fat cells and we take them out permanently. And that's a permanent change. So the number of total fat cells that you're going to have is going to go down. But the way that fat cells also work is they can get bigger or smaller depending on your weight. So I always just explain to patients that yes, you will never regain those fat cells that we take out, but the fat cells that you have can get bigger or smaller, depending on your weight. So uh, some of the misconceptions that, um, you guys have probably heard too, is, you know, can I gain weight back in the same area? Yes, you absolutely can, because those fat cells can just get bigger. Um, I've had patients say, you know, well, somebody told me that, uh, you won't gain weight in the same area, but you'll gain a whole bunch of weight in other areas. And it's like, no, that's not really true either. You know what I mean? So that's, that's kind of the way that liposuction works and the way that the fat cells kind of work. Um, when we do liposuction, we actually through tiny little incisions, we'll put in a cannula, which is basically like a hollow metal tube. Um, different cannulas that have different kind of patterns of the opening in them, which actually collects the fat we can use in different areas, kind of depending on the body type or the amount of fat, et cetera. Um, but basically what you do is you suction the fat cells out. That's part of it. The other part of how we get rid of fat in liposuction is when we're actually going in there, we suck out some of the fat cells, but we also disrupt other fat cells. So the process of liposuction and kind of getting to your final result takes about three to six months. And the reason why is because the fat cells that we remove are going to be removed immediately, but we create swelling, which takes a while to go down, but those disrupted fat cells will actually get reabsorbed by your body. So we destroy some of them, but just don't suck them out. And so that also takes, you know, 12 weeks or so to really be able to see the results from that. So basically like the perfect candidate for liposuction is going to be somebody who, you know, ideally is in fairly good shape to begin with. Um, but obviously has fat or else they really wouldn't be coming in for liposuction. You want somebody who is going to be able to be patient with their results. Cause like we just talked about, it takes a while. Um, you want somebody who is going to, you know, want realistic results and that kind of, you know, we'll kind of get into the BBLs and the social media and all that kind of stuff. But the other thing is you want somebody who's going to be committed to maintaining their results. So a lot of times when you see people who get these killer results with liposuction, 
it's because now they are super regimented in maintaining those results. And what you'll actually see on the flip side of social media, so in more of the academic world, you have these big liposuction, you know, high def lipo gurus. And when they put out all of these papers with these insane results of, you know, abdominal etching and all this kind of stuff, they actually have programs that they put patients on afterwards to maintain those results so that they can have those amazing results tied to their name and they can use those pictures and stuff. So, you know, it's really a lifelong commitment. It's not just this kind of short-term thing to lose weight, which sometimes every once in a while you get a patient who kind of treats it like that. The other thing to think about with liposuction is liposuction does not get rid of cellulite. Those are two totally different things. And liposuction is not great to use in somebody who has loose skin. And if you have somebody who has loose skin and who has cellulite and you only offer them liposuction, you can actually make them look worse. So liposuction always seems really appealing, right? So let's just take somebody who comes in, they're complaining about their abdomen. And of course they only want liposuction. They don't want a tummy tuck because liposuction, tiny little incisions, they don't have a big scar. They think their recovery is going to be easier. But if you only do liposuction and they have loose skin to begin with, you're just going to make them look worse. So, and there are plastic surgery, I'll lose that term loosely, um, practices that you see that really only have one tool in their toolbox and that's liposuction. And they use it on a lot of inappropriate patients. And because of that, you know, a lot of plastic surgeons will be doing a lot of, um, you know, repeat lipo on patients who just kind of had the wrong procedure to begin with in the first place. So. What are, cause like some of the stuff when we started talking about this and looking up like these like really snatched waists, these wastes, wastes, these tiny little things. Is there a certain point where it's like taking out too much is a, is a risk or if it's, is it just like, do, do I get like, so let's say go and do I get to choose how much you take out? Is it like based on a certain like body fat percentage? Like, how do you know, like, I'm just assuming like the difference between like big results and little results is like the amount actually taken out. Oh, I mean, I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see really, I, I think I would use a different term, not big results, but dramatic. I think you're going to see dramatic results in different types of people. And I think some of the most dramatic results that you see are in patients who are already in pretty good shape because you're really just enhancing what they already have, as opposed to sort of trying to create that with them from scratch. Um, you know, in terms of how much fat we take out, um, we try to, we try to take out as much fat as possible and still, you know, make patients proportionate, but you never want to take out all the fat. So you always want to leave like a thin layer of fat closest to the skin, because if you take that fat layer out, then number one, you're going to be able to see any contour irregularities that there are. And inevitably there's going to, you know, you're asking us to go underneath the skin and take out an exactly uniform layer of fat. It's never going to be exactly uniform. And so that fat layer is a really nice kind of cushion to, to really kind of just add, add like a blanket layer over everything. But the second thing that I think that people don't always think about is healthy tissue has fat in it. Right. So if you look at somebody, for example, a totally different example, but you look at somebody who's 80 years old and they're thin versus somebody who's older and they're overweight, 
overweight people's skin looks better because fat is kind of youthful, right? That's why we're doing fat injections all over the place for anti-aging stuff. So, you know, they always say like, choose your ass and your, or your face, like once you turn past a certain age and that's kind of the same type of thing. So if you take out all that fat, you will defat the skin and give it this like really thin crepey appearance. And you can see that like the first person that comes to my mind is somebody like Tara Reed. I mean, I hate to like throw somebody under the bus, but if you look at, like, I remember looking at pictures of her liposuction and it was just somebody who tried to do too much. Now there are exceptions to when you're totally Googling pictures of Tara Reed right now. And I highly suggest just so everyone has a reference that you take your phone out for a second, Google Tara Reed, and we can all look through this with the doctor. (laughs) Does it look like kind of what I'm describing? Yeah. Yeah. Almost. I think we know like another way that we know, like, is that prep face, you know, when you're really, really lean close to competing and you've got that super creepy prep face. Yeah. 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 I mean, you want a good amount of fat. It looks natural and it's going to keep your skin really supple. So what about like legs, like doing like, like I'm just, I just saw a picture and like, it's like hot dog legs. Is that lipo? What do you mean? Like taking out too much fat that you like change the anatomical shape. That you makes can, sense for sure. I don't know if I know the specific reference of like hot yeah. dog legs. Okay. But yeah. I mean, you can do all sorts of stuff with liposuction. Um, you can make somebody look very disproportionate. You can also create a lot of really nice proportions, um, which is where I think you know, fat grafting has become really, really useful when done right to, you know, it's a lot of addition and subtraction. It's kind of what I was talking about. I don't remember if I was talking about this before when I do like a breast lift or a breast reduction, or even like a, even if I'm adding an implant and I'm doing a lift, it's a lot of like addition, subtraction. You don't always want to only do one or the other because you can do you know, subtraction with liposuction and take fat out in unwanted places. But then you can also take some of that fat and add it to, for example, like the hip dips. That's a really common thing now. And you're just creating a shape that maybe somebody didn't have before, but it looks really natural. But can you say, can you say that again? The what? The hip, the hip dips. Okay. You're going to have to explain this. I okay, literally, no, no, no. Like, hold on. We're doing what now? Foot out, pop the hip, the dip, the yeah. hip dip. So people are doing that with surgery, I guess. People are fat grafting to that area. I did all the things you learn. I know it's, it's, it's definitely a new kind of thing. I mean, they're adding fat there or subtracting fat there. They're adding fat there. So a lot of like the sort of BBL kind of look is really tiny waist. And then you're going to add volume to not only the butt, but the hips, you know? So Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, but when done right, it looks really great on the right patient. Something you said, and I just wanted a little clarification because I know this might be even a trigger for a client when you're talking to them and saying that you can't get rid of the cellulite. So can you kind of talk to us about, because I know the next question, you know, if I was coming in for a surgery and I'm like, and that's my big thing is like, I see cellulite, you know, all over my legs or something. Like I can imagine, you know, them being pretty sad when you're, when you're like, yeah, we can do liposuction, but you're still going to have cellulite. So mm-hmm. why is yeah. that? Well, cellulite is like skin tightening. It's kind of been like a holy grail of, you know, there's been a million devices that have been put out to try and get rid of cellulite. And the fact that we don't have 
one that everybody uses means that we really haven't kind of gotten there yet. There's a new injection that people are doing for cellulite as well. But basically the idea behind cellulite is that there's sort of these under attachments to your skin that are kind of causing the dimpling. And so some of the devices that have been used in the past are ones that you put underneath the skin and try and break up those attachments. But because they haven't really been all that successful, we're kind of learning that there's multiple components to cellulite. But yes, you are right. And the, the area that is the most challenging for patients who are heavier that have a lot of cellulite is the legs. Um, and, you know, it all comes down to having a really candid conversation with the patient about realistic expectations. You know, I can make it so that putting your pants on is easier. You like your shape better. Your inner thighs don't touch. But can I necessarily make you look good in shorts? No, you know in some patients. And it's really tough because in some patients, when you take that fat out, the skin will contract enough where it actually will reduce the appearance of cellulite. But sometimes when you take the fat out and the skin doesn't retract, it actually makes the cellulite look worse. If that makes sense. Cause you're kind of deflating it as opposed to inflating it. So yeah. So it's, it, it's always, challenging having those conversations. But once again, it's just about transparency and having, you know, a patient that understands what they're going to get from it and understands what they're not going to get from certain surgeries. Do you um, have conversations with clients about expectations afterwards, as far as after someone's have, you know, had a surgical procedure and they now are getting a body, hopefully a shape that they would like, um, are you having discussions or do you know of, you know, places that are having discussions as what it takes for them to actually maintain that as far as like health going forward, that it's not just about having a surgery, you know, to get this dream body, but now we need to keep it or, you know, kind of walk forward or we're going to negate all these thousands of dollars we've spent or even make things worse just because of all the inflammation and things after surgery. Yeah. I mean, I, I touch on it. I don't have like in-depth conversations. I don't, you know, I don't give patients workout regimens or, you know, recommend specific diets. If patients ask me about it, I'm happy to, you know, give kind of my own anecdotal ideas about, you know, diet and exercise and stuff, but it's definitely part of the conversation about maintaining the results Mm -hmm. because the last thing you want to do is have somebody who thinks that, you know, these surgeries are a miracle worker. I mean, it's the scale is never going to, it's never going to be as much as you think. That's like the number one rule about a tummy tuck or lipo. If you have somebody who comes in and says, I just want to lose that extra 20 pounds. Well, you're not going to lose that extra 20 pounds, even if we do a ton of lipo, you know what I mean? So that's never kind of the person that you want. And, you know, somebody who is just using it as a way to continue their unhealthy lifestyle is not somebody that you want either. Cause then you're not doing anybody any favors because then they're kind of walking around and they're a billboard of your work, which doesn't yeah. look that great. And then they're unhappy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I kind of see, I don't know about, you know, you guys, like my fellow coaches, but like someone potentially being a good candidate to this and that, you know, we've dieted, like we've gone through maybe one or two fat loss phases and like reverse diets. And there's just certain places in our body that we just store fat. Like, yeah no matter how, like you're going to have to take, and it's going to be quality of life that takes a hit and metabolism. So like, maybe this is something to look into that. Like if you're, you know, it's something that you're self-conscious about, or it's like, you know, just 
really just taking up a lot of like emotional capacity, like, you know, whatever it is, you know, back of your arms, something like that. Like, because we don't want to put your body in that place. You know, we want to be realistic about what we can achieve with diet fat loss, um, in a certain period of time. And, or looking for like a specific shape as well, you know, because we don't always get to choose where we have curves. Right. And so, like you said, it's like what quality of life, it's kind of like, some people are just naturally going to gain more in their midsection and have more narrow hips and have yet if they want that more like, um, uh, thanks. Thank God we're moving this to YouTube more of that hourglass shape. Maybe this would be something to even like help them achieve that. Right. Because at a certain point it's like, I will have clients that have that and we lose weight, but it's like, we're, we also have to build muscle, right? When we talk about creating that shape, a lot of it has to be about building glutes versus just transferring fat there. But, you know, it's, I, I support, like I'm pro plastic surgery. Like I support people getting the goals that they want and feeling the best inside of their body. But I think it's like Dr. Mango was saying, is like being realistic with the expectations and knowing that this is one step forward that has to come along with a lifestyle change for you to really see these results and for it to be worth it. And maybe we can go into like what the pricing, you know, ballpark is on stuff like this. So clients know as well. But I think another thing to consider is kind of like, if you're going to be doing this and maybe we can dig into this and then you're still going to lose body fat, what does that do for the shape? Do you lose your new butt? Do you, what does that look like for fat loss and fat gain around lipo? I mean, it's, it's always a little bit unpredictable. So you, I would say because of the unpredictability of it and all the work that is going into getting surgery, you know, the cost, the recovery, all that kind of stuff. Like you are so much, it's, it would be hard pressed for me to want to operate on a patient and do fat grafting and lipo knowing that they're going to go on to lose 20 more pounds because you for sure could lose the fat that we've grafted for sure. Now there's always exceptions to that. Some of my favorite patients and some of the happiest patients that I've ever had, they were smack in the middle of their journey. And we had really candid conversations and it was sort of like, this was the thing that they needed in the middle of their journey to boost them to get to the end. And sure enough, they have, and they were totally willing to accept that they may need another procedure. Um, and you know, as long as they understand that, I mean, that's awesome. You know, we helped them get where they needed to go. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the exception to the rule. Um, but yeah, you can't really predict where somebody's going to gain and lose weight. The best predictor is what's happened to you before, you know, like it's the same for the breast. People always ask me that. And I'm like, well, when you gain and lose weight before, do your breasts normally change? Cause for some women they do. And for some women, they don't, you know, no matter what I do, my breasts will never get bigger. <laughs> I've learned that had a baby and then get bigger. So, you know, I'm never going to all of a sudden gain weight in my breasts. Cause that's just not the way my body is programmed. But for some people, they always, they know exactly where they're going to gain and lose weight. And like you were talking about with the midsection, that's just, you have your problem areas and that's just kind of genetics. So I think I agree so much like with like what you said and what Sarah said and Sonia, like, I think that I foresee the people that are at the utmost place to do this, where this is the time is they already have their habits. They're already living that lifestyle. They're being consistent with all the things. And perhaps that they're in the middle of this journey and 
they have this area, whether it's their upper thighs that they can have, like they can get a, you know, teeny tiny waist ripped abs, but they still have thighs that just are not moving or, you know, their upper arm, just upper arms will not change, but the rest of their body will. I see that, you know, this may be the journey that they need to just give them more confidence to keep Mm -hmm. them moving forward. And I see it, you know, I think what my fear is always is that some people think that, you know, perhaps liposuction is an answer to continuing bad habits and Mm -hmm. inconsistency. And I think that breaks my heart because I know ultimately they're, they're not going to be happy, you know, cause they're going to have this done. And then it's like you said, you can still gain fat back again. Like it's not a end all be all, you know, cured for life type of thing. Yeah. And I would have to say, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to speak for everybody. Cause obviously I only, I have a bias, like my yeah. bias, cause I only know my patients, but it is really rare to see somebody come into my practice um, wanting to use it as a way to, you know, continue unhealthy practices. I generally, but that's, you know, that's, that's, I can't make a blanket statement because that could just be the kind of people that are attracted to me as a surgeon. And so they come and see me. But it's usually, it's usually just a confidence booster. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Because we all have those areas, like we've talked about, like that, you know, every picture that we look at, We have angles that we do, you know, we pick certain types of clothing because we know that, you know, a cap sleeve doesn't look good on me or a tube top dot, you know what I mean? Like, so I think it's really important for, you know, for those areas for sure. So go ahead. I was going to ask about the spider vein. So you go ahead. Okay. I was going to go, I had some questions about radio frequency like skin yeah, versus like skin, um, cool sculpting, cool sculpting. Yeah. So, so I, wherever you want to start with that. <laughs> yeah. Let's kind of break it down into the radio frequency kind of stuff, because there's actually, um, there's a lot of stuff going on right now with basically the radio frequency idea is, is skin tightening. Okay. So that's skin tightening. Like we were talking about with cellulite is sort of like the Holy grail plastic surgery. Um, and there have been devices that have come on the market and gone away. And, you know, the idea is nothing new. Um, but there's a lot of devices out there right now, especially there's body tight, there's face tight, there's Renuvion, um, there's Vaser. And basically all of these devices use some type of energy, thermal energy to, tighten the skin. And a lot of them you will use in conjunction with liposuction because when you do liposuction, like we talked about, you take the volume out, but we don't really know what the skin's going to do. And usually it doesn't contract down that much, which is why you don't want to do liposuction on somebody with loose skin to begin with. So, you know, those devices are good. I've seen really great results with, you know, for example, the Renuvion. Um, I used a vaser in my previous practice and I was really happy with it, but even the devices themselves will quote, I think it's anywhere from six to 10% skin tightening, um, which is really not a miracle worker. What's the price Um, on that? I mean, it'll have a couple it'll add a couple grand to your liposuction. Yeah. That doesn't so, seem like much of a change for that. 
Yeah. And it really, I think it really does come down to patient selection too. I mean, if you have somebody with really loose skin and you're like trying to upsell them on the Renuvion, of course, they're not be. but if you have the right patient where they just need a little bit of skin tightening, you know, the perfect example that I feel like is, um, the arms. Okay. Because our surgical options for tightening the skin on the arms sucks because a lot of times it involves a super visible scar. And so if we can have a device where in conjunction with liposuction, we debulk the back of the arms and we tighten the skin just a little bit, I think that's great, but it just really has to be done in the right patient. And so, you know, and then it comes down to finding a practitioner that you really trust, you know, that you trust is not gonna upsell you because these are money makers at the end of the day. Now, the same thing kind of holds true for cool sculpting. Um, I don't use cool sculpting in my practice, but I think the name of the game with cool sculpting and after talking to colleagues who do use it is it's great in the right patient. So it's not a catch-all. If you have a lot of fat to get rid of, it's not, in, it's not a great option for you. And a lot of times what people don't realize is these more non-surgical options, people are really scared by the price of plastic surgery. But when you add up all the treatments that you do with these non-surgical things, you are spending at least as much as you would do with surgery. So that's always really important to think about too. Um, But cool sculpting for a small area, I think is good. You know, Um, cool sculpting for large areas, probably not worth your money. What's the recovery? Go ahead. Oh, does it take multiple treatment? Like, it's not just like I go once or is it? It just depends on your response to it. That's the thing is you don't totally know. Um, So a lot of times with more non-surgical stuff, there's a reason why they sell them in packages. And that's usually because patients need multiple treatments. So, you know, another kind of fat, um, something aimed at fat is Kybella. So Kybella is an injection. And we most commonly use it for that little fat pad underneath the chin. Um, And a lot of times patients need two to three treatments to get the desired result. So, you know, and we usually sell it in packages because we know that they're going to need more than one injection. What's the recovery time of like stuff like lipo and the BBL? I wanted to ask that too. So liposuction, most patients just say afterwards that they're really sore. Um, It obviously is going to depend a lot on how much liposuction you have done and how many areas you have done. Um, But recovery time is going to be, you know, a couple of weeks. If we do a ton of liposuction on somebody like abdomen, waist, flanks, and they have a lot of fat to remove, I don't really want them working out for at least four weeks. If we do minimal, you know, liposuction, maybe just on the abdomen and maybe a little bit on the arms, I can see them start getting back to life activity at two to three weeks. Um, Usually I'll have my patients wear some sort of compression garment, um, but the aftercare for liposuction is there's really no evidence-based approach for it. So the name of the game with aftercare is generally we create a lot of swelling with liposuction. We're trying to get that volume down. So it's whatever needs to be done to get that volume down. So you'll see different surgeons have different regimens for compression garments, which is the most common thing that we use afterwards. Some people swear by lymphatic massage, regular massage. 
some surgeons will give patients like rollers to sort of like roll the tissue and get the swelling out. There's not really any good evidence to show really any of that. I tell my patients personally, I'm like, if you can wear your compression garment for two months afterwards, I would be really, really happy. But unfortunately, like I said, not a whole lot of good evidence to support what actually works and what's going to get you the best results. Okay. Cool. So one thing that you guys have kind of dropped it a little bit, but I think it's really worth talking about is fat grafting. Because there's a lot of stuff on social media really having to do with BBLs. Um, But I think it's really important for patients to understand the benefits of fat grafting, but more importantly, the limitations of it. So when we take fat, um, it's usually when we're doing liposuction, right? So we have the option to throw away the fat or we can take it. We can kind of condense it down from all the other stuff that we use in liposuction and then infiltrate it back in into the areas that we want it to. As of right now with the technology that we have, at best, I mean, it's going to vary depending on who you ask, depending on which paper you read, but I think a good number to stick with is about 70% of the fat that we put in is going to live. So you're going to have swelling to begin with. That swelling is going to go down just like after every surgery. And then over the next couple of months, those fat cells that didn't gain a blood supply because they have to be able to live in order to stay there. Um, those fat cells will go away. So you always have to kind of keep that in mind. And there's a lot of things that can influence how viable the fat is. So there is harvesting technique. There is how you separate the fat and the technique for that. One of the big ones is the technique that people have to inject the fat. Um, I kind of talked about blood supply. So when we're injecting fat back in, we want to do it in really small quantities because each of those fat cells, you want to be surrounded by enough tissue that it can get a blood supply to basically start growing to it. Um, So there's all of these different techniques and all of these things that really have to be in place in order to get good viability. And then afterwards with, for example, a BBL, you really want to offload pressure because you don't want a whole bunch of pressure on that fat, because that's just going to basically just make it that much harder for that blood supply to get to the fat. So you'll see for BBLs, special garments, um, special pillows. A lot of times we'll have patients sleep on their stomach for an extended period of time. Obviously putting pressure on your backside is inevitable at some point, you know, I mean, you can't take two months off work. I mean, maybe some people can, but most people can't. So, you know, just trying to, trying to troubleshoot and offload as much pressure as possible, but still kind of letting the patient live their daily lives and do the things that they need to do. So those are kind of the key things with that. So when we have somebody, when I have somebody who comes in for fat grafting, it's very, very important to have a realistic conversation with them. In my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of my colleagues, a lot of these really extreme examples that you see on social media are multiple rounds of fat grafting. Because for every injection, you're gonna lose fat. So, and you can't, in, you can't just dump, let's say, let's say you got two liters of fat from somebody and you put two liters of fat in somebody's butt. There's not enough space for it. There's not enough blood supply to go to all of it. 
Like it's just, you're going to lose a lot of that. So, you know, you see a lot of social media pictures of patients on the table. We always tell patients be very wary of that because everything looks really good on the table. Obviously none of that fats had a chance to die off. It's still very swollen. So, you know, that's never really a good indication of what things are going to look like in terms of fat grafting. Um, and then the other thing to keep in mind with social media is if you look at a lot of these people who have really extreme results, one of the things that drives me nuts is they're all wearing the same shaped underwear, which is going to make anybody's butt look bigger. And they are all standing in the same position, which is going to make people's butt look bigger. It's all a little bit of an optical illusion. And there's a lot of consistency if you actually take the time to look at it. So it's, it's definitely manipulation. Um, for sure. And I, and like I said, you know, maybe people not being transparent about how many rounds of fat grafting they've had. So, and then, oh, sorry. I was going to ask real quick, do you have your patients bring like wish picks? Yes. Okay. Cause like, I know like for, you know, breast implants and breast augmentations, like that's like a thing, but I'm assuming it is for, for anything else really. Yes. And especially for that procedure. What? I said, it's like when you're getting ready, like I have a whole file of boob pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and pictures are great. Yeah. Pictures are like, I mean, it's like an age old thing. They're like worth a thousand words. So sometimes I don't have patients who can really verbally express to me what it is they want. But if I look at two or three different pictures, I can pick up the similarities that obviously cause them to choose those pictures. And then we can start a whole nother conversation about it. So I like those pictures. Um, especially for BBLs, it's really a good way to screen out patients with unrealistic expectations too. Yeah. As a coach, I feel like I'm going to start requiring pictures. I've actually, well, I asked because I've been, there's been a couple of clients lately that they say they want to achieve X, Y, Z body composition changes, but like, I'm like, my ideal is not their ideal, you know? So like kind of having the pictures helpful. Mm-hmm. I, I will have, it's funny. Cause I have a client. She's like, I want to lose. I was like, send me a picture. Like uh, we've been working together for two years. She's also like 35 pounds. And she sent me a picture and I was like, go take a picture of yourself in really good lighting and pose a little like, and she sent it back. And I was like, She's like, it's so crazy. I look better. And I'm like, I know you look way better than these models. She sent me, they have like all like have this thigh gap and like no muscle. And she has like toned abs and glutes now. And I was like, we're good. She was like, wow, this gave me actually really good perspective. I like gave her some posing tips and stuff like that. But I think sometimes we're not seeing ourselves through like a realistic light or we're not seeing ourselves next to like our actual results. We're just kind of like picking ourselves apart based on like one, we normally focus on the one area we don't like. So like every check-in picture, even when I was 6% body fat was like, look at my stomach, look at my, my glutes were like striated, you know? And it's like, we just, we do that typically to ourselves. So sometimes it's nice to like put together, like, where, what do you want to look like? And what do you actually look like next to each other? And like, how far off are you actually from that? Mm-hmm. Dr. Megan, this is kind of random, but do you have patients come in often with like a friend or like a spouse, like, or are they often coming in solo for that initial consultation? Um, well, it's probably a little bit different because of COVID. Um, but a lot of times it's probably 50, 50 actually. Okay. 
I was just sometimes curious. people come yeah. in with their girlfriends. Sometimes, you know, girls come in with their boyfriends, um, which can be good or bad, <laughs> you know, depending <laughs> on the boyfriend. So. Hey, son, I wanted to ask you guys, you had mentioned wanting to talk to her about uh, labiaplasty. Mm-hmm. Is that is that something that y'all wanted to dig into now, or is this a th- an episode three y'all wanted to go into? I don't know as far as how in depth you wanted to go, Dr. Megan, for that, and who's candidates, and because I that is something I know nothing about, but I also know that there is a population of clients that that very much applies to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can get into it if you want. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, I mean, basically everybody's talking about labiaplasties now. Um, and it's like one of the hottest procedures. There's a couple of different reasons why. Um, I mean, I think number one, like there's just so much more exposure. We have so much more outlets to get information, to talk to one another, you know, relatively anonymously, it tends to be a very personal topic. So, you know, you're going to learn a lot more by going into a Facebook group than you are making an appointment with your doctor and being like, I'm really unhappy with the way that my labia looks. Um, (laughs) So it's just, people are talking about it like that much more. Um, Patient satisfaction rate is really high with labiaplasties. Um, The patients tend to be younger. So the demographics is, you know, 30 to 40 years old. Um, So, and I think in like the, 2010s, like it increased by like 600%. So we're just seeing so many more patients want it. We're seeing more people talk about it for sure. So it's definitely a good one to talk about. You know, there's a whole bunch of different reasons why people seek a labiaplasty. There's more of the aesthetic reasons that people would seek it. Um, But there's also a lot of functional issues that patients have. You know, if you have excessive labia minora tissue, which is to typically the tissue that we're talking about with the labiaplasty, I mean, it can predispose you to recurrent UTIs, hygiene issues, discomfort with exercise, discomfort with sex, um, you know, all of these issues. And then I think has really been kind of underestimated is the sort of psychological effects that, you know, the appearance of your own female anatomy can have on something like sexual function. So it's really good that people are starting to talk about it now. And those are kind of the reasons why people seek a labiaplasty out. Um, I definitely didn't realize how controversial labiaplasties have been and kind of continue to be. So that's definitely (laughs) something that mean by controversial just. Well, what's because we had talked about, you know, talking about labiaplasties. And so I was like. I'm going to look at what the American College of Gynecology, you know, thinks about labiaplasties. And really up until I think like the last year or two, um, there's been a lot of, which I just think is, is very erroneous of sort of putting all of female genital surgery in one category and in the same category as like female genital mutilation. So the words mutilation and unethical come up a lot when people are talking about labiaplasties. And apparently it also used to be one of those things that was very, I picture like an old white dude in a white coat who is telling a younger patient that the reason why her labia are long is because of like hypersexual behavior. So apparently it used to be a way to shame women. Um, So so yeah, yeah, I didn't, I, I wasn't really expecting that. Um, 
there's also a whole bunch of people who believe that, you know, it's normal anatomy and you shouldn't mess with normal anatomy. But if you really extrapolate that, I mean, that would negate all of cosmetic surgery, right? Like the whole point is we're sort of changing and altering quote unquote normal anatomy, right? Um, but basically um, labioplasties come in usually like two different types of procedures. And I think it's worthwhile to make sure that you have a surgeon who's familiar with both of them. Um, because, you know, one of the things that we realize now that we're talking about female genitalia so much more often is that there's so much variability in how things actually look. Um, and so you can't really do this sort of cookie cutter, you know, one size fits all approach to labias. But basically, I mean, I guess it kind of bears taking a little bit of a step back and talking about female anatomy, because there's a lot of different parts to the female genitalia. You know, you have your mons pubis, which is that fat pad right over your pelvic bone. Um, when you're talking about your mons, you don't want it to be excessively large. You don't want it to be sagging because obviously if you're wearing tight clothes, that's just a really unattractive look. Then you have your labia majora and you want your labia majora to be full enough that they kind of can tuck in your labia minora. So when we think about like the ideal female genitalia and you're looking at somebody in a standing position, that's kind of the consensus that we're at. So that if you have somebody whose labia minora is actually hanging below the labia majora, then it's usually somebody who is coming in for labiaplasty because a labiaplasty is actually talking about the labia minora, which is, you know, the inner lips of the vagina. And then it's also usually including the clitoral hood. So the clitoral hood is going to be just a little fold of skin that as it kind of comes off to the side, will fuse with your labia minora. So most of the time you want a surgeon who's going to take into account all of the anatomy um, because it could be that you need a clitoral hood reduction as well, in addition to your labiaplasty. Um, so there's, like I said, there's kind of two schools of how people do it. There's a trim labiaplasty and there's a wedge. Um, and I sometimes use the analogy of pizza because I think it just kind of makes sense, even though it seems kind of gross, but a trim labiaplasty, I mean, they're both kind of exactly how they sound. A trim labiaplasty is just trimming like the crust off the pizza. It's just trimming the outer edge. And that's going to be a really good option for a patient who maybe has thickened labial edges or a lot of hyperpigmentation because they don't want to preserve that labial edge. They really want to trim it off. Um, so there's that procedure. And then the other one is a wedge procedure. So kind of going back to that, like pizza analogy, just, it's basically taking a wedge of tissue out and then closing the edges together, inadvertently making the labia smaller. The downside to using a wedge, um, is that it's, well, it's going to preserve your natural labial edge. So, cause you're not trimming it off. So if you have somebody who doesn't like the edge of their labia, you probably don't want to do a wedge. Another downside to doing a wedge is um, you can't really address the whole length of the labia. You can only address kind of part of it because you're only taking out part of it. And then lastly, you know, one of the big kind of complications with the labia plasty, as you can imagine, is wound healing issues. So it's just, it's like having something in your armpit. It's a very you know, inherently kind of dirty area. There's a lot of traffic in and out of there. Just even if you're not doing anything that you shouldn't be, you know, we urinate, we get our periods, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and so with a trim labiaplasty, if you were to have some issues with wound healing, it doesn't usually mean that you have to have a second operation to correct it. With a wedge, if that wedge comes apart, then that usually means that you have to have some type of surgical procedure to correct that because then you're just gonna have a divot. So that's kind of like the, the two procedures that people generally do. Now, labiaplasties do not include any type of like vaginal tightening. So those are like totally different. What, um, can you tell us a little bit about the O-shot? Um, I don't you know, much do about any of that. that. Okay. So there's, I mean, a couple of different things that people are using. Um, and as far as I know, right. So the extent of my knowledge is there is sometimes people are using PRP injections, which is platelet, platelet rich plasma, which basically means that we take a sample of your blood, we spin it out, we get this awesome cell layer with sort of these regenerative cells. We use that all the time for injections in the face. And sometimes we mix it with fat when we're doing fat grafting to maybe increase the viability of the fat, but some people are injecting PRP. Um, and then the other thing that people are doing is injecting filler with the idea that, you know, I mean, obviously with that area, pressure and friction and all of those things matter for sexual function. And so maybe increasing the volume, um, will help to kind of improve things. If there's not, I, once again, I don't think there's a lot of good evidence. I think a lot of what people are doing is, you know, I'm sure there's really happy patients out there, um, but there's not a whole lot of consistency for what people are doing. We're just, I feel like just kind of getting into the bigger conversation and like, yeah, I didn't you know, know this was sexual function. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I am still a firm believer that most people couldn't find their G spot if their life depended on it. There's a lot of people I know, like you're either locked and loaded, like this is exactly where it is, or you're still like, I don't know kind of exactly if it's there, if it's not there. And but it's like, even debated if it exists or not. So it's like, there's just no consensus, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and so like, that goes back to like some people's anatomy are going to be very, like a lot more predominant of having something like that versus other people. And like in theory, like in tantric stuff, like studies and stuff like that, you have the G spot, you have the O spot and you have the P spot. So you can get stimulated in different ways. If you like, like want to stimulate those different channels, it's not always necessarily that you're broken. Cause it would be a shame to spend, I don't know, probably three K on getting an O spot for hopes of having an orgasm. If you more or less just have pelvic floor damage or scar tissue in there from childbirth. And you just need to do almost like the, we talked, I talked about like the pelvic wand on an episode of with the excellence cartel, like breaking up that this, the potential scar tissue in there that could have come from childbirth. But it's just really interesting because I, as I was like Googling around, I saw that I was like, oh, that looks like fun, you know, but it doesn't really look like it. I don't quite get how it would make a big difference. Unless yeah. I, I, people, people like doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> people love gimmicks. Like people love making money off gimmicks and there are a group of patients who really like seeking out kind of gimmicky things. So it's one of those things where things really have to stand the test of time and you really have to get some evidence to kind of support what you're doing. Now, there are some people who will just throw money at anything. And, you know, if it's three grand and you don't really care if you lose three grand and get nothing out of it, then like maybe go for it. But I don't know many people who want to just kind of piss away three grand. 
Yeah. This would be, and this would be for someone that's done having kids, I'm assuming. I'm sorry, the labiaplasty. No, no. Yeah. A lot of those patients are younger. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the thing is just like, uh, just like you would counsel somebody with anything, if there's going to have some sort of change in their body per se, um, your labia can change after having kids. So there would always be a risk that maybe you undergo a labiaplasty in your twenties and then you go on to have kids and things change and you need to touch up. But I think that patient satisfaction rate is so high that I don't think you should, if that's something that you're really interested in, and if that's something that you really feel like you have you know, either functional concerns or, you know, issues with self-esteem or whatever it may be. I think it's worth seeking out, you know, it's a relatively quick procedure to do. Um, a lot of times we don't put you all the way under most surgeons will just do like an oral sedation and then use a local injection of, you know, like a local numbing medication. Um, and it usually takes, you know, an hour, hour and a half, and then you're out going home. So it's not, it's not super time consuming to do, and it can make a really, really big difference for patients. Oh, for sure. And then recovery time. I mean, you obviously like really important to keep that area clean, but what, what's like things clean usually will, um, have patients wear a pad, like a light pad for a couple of days. The kind of the rule of thumb with labiaplasties afterwards is to try and stay away from things for about four to six weeks. So you know, if you get your period, you don't really want to be using a tampon and kind of moving things around. You really want to avoid sexual activity for about four to six weeks. Working out, I think is really dependent on what activities you're doing. Um, obviously I don't want you sitting on like a spin bike (laughs) um, for a while because wound healing is a really big problem with it. So the thing about wound healing down there, we kind of talked about how it's just going to be prone to being really moist. Uh, I hate using that word, but I feel like there's no other word to use. Yeah, <laughs> talking about uh, the vagina, it's never wrong. So what you don't want to do is have your suture line break down, um, which can happen if you have excessive moisture. And so you really want to try and keep those suture lines together, obviously, because you don't want to have wound breakdown because that means that you have to have a wound that you know, you need to do dressing changes on or whatever. But the other thing that we think about in the labia in particular is when we have an incision line anywhere. So let's say we do a breast lift and you have breakdown of your incision and it kind of opens up a little bit. Usually what we do is we leave that incision open because it's already kind of contaminated and we let it heal by something called secondary intention, which is basically, we just let it heal from the inside out. When it becomes problematic in a labiaplasty is A lot of times when you let wounds heal by secondary intention, they go on to heal thicker than they normally would had that stitch line stayed together. And what you don't want is really thick scars in certain areas of a labiaplasty because we don't want to distort the anatomy. If you have a thick scar on one side and then it's pulling things over or it's not allowing enough of the labial length so that you retain moisture, which is important. You don't want to just chop off your labia, right? Um, Or a lot of times where we worry about excessive scarring is when the labia run posteriorly and the labia minora, they kind of coalesce towards one another. They may or may not fuse. Some women they fuse, some women they don't. But 
it's called the posterior fourchette is where that kind of comes together. And it, the, like the posterior aspect of the vaginal opening sits right there. So what you don't want is excessively tight scar tissue that's now going to put pressure and potentially constrict the vaginal opening. Because then you're setting up yourself up for a whole other kind of slew of problems. So that's where we like, that's another reason why we really care about wound healing down there, because we just don't want to get bigger, thicker scars that are either going to be painful, cause contraction, or can change and alter sensation. What about clitoral hood reduction surgery? I'm online right now, so I'm learning all about this vaginal rejuvenation. I am into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really common. It's really common to do as part of a labioplasty, Um, but it really just depends on the patient's anatomy. I mean, sometimes like what is a labioplasty clitoral? Like what's the price ranges? I'm sure it's different everywhere, but like, I would say probably an average is going to be about five grand. Yeah you know, and it's, you know, you're not going to pay a ton for anesthesia, which is always something you have to consider. Um, doesn't mean just because, you know, you shouldn't skimp on anesthesia costs, but it can be done with just an oral sedative and some local, which is nice because it ends up kind of cutting the cost down on the procedure. Crazy. Yeah. Well, definitely. You, uh, definitely educated a lot because there's some of the things like I didn't even realize were things. So this is, this is as always so informative and incredible. Yeah. Always lots to talk about. So it's, I'm like in this deep world of vaginal rejuvenation now. And I'm just like, I'm learning (laughs) so much. I'm like, wow, you know, what can we do down there? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's really cool too, because like she said, like, there's a lot of issues that it's not always just about like, how do I look, you know, but it's like how we feel about ourselves when we're naked really goes a long way, especially when like sexuality and vitality are very closely like tied together. You do want to feel really comfortable in your body when you are naked and comfortable in your body when you're having sex. And if it's something that's bothered you or you're, it's that comparison game, or you just don't feel your best, something like this can make a huge difference in your life. I imagine if you're dealing with that and it's something that's low grade, been even stress with dating. And now there's a way to like take care of it. I mean, I, I wouldn't see why you wouldn't want to do that. That's, I mean, that's just me, but it's, it's kind of like, you just have one less stress to worry about now. And it seems like such a minor a minor thing to go through to feel your best, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why conversations like this are so good because there's a lot of stuff that, you know, really bother people and they don't always realize that you can do something about it. Um, you know, like one of the things that, that I see all the time and I tell patients all the time is nipple reductions, like actually reducing the size of your nipples, like people who breastfeed or sometimes just that's the way that they were born. It causes so much psychological distress because it's like, oh, I can't wear a super tight shirt. I can't wear this type of bra because my nipples are going to poke through. There's all these things. And I'm like, dude, in 10 minutes, we can fix that. Like, it's so easy. And they're like, oh, I had no idea. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, so it's good to talk about it. Yeah. I think too, like when it comes to vaginas, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, that is not... I'm, it's not normal or I, it's not normal to feel that way or to have painful sex or to have uncomfortable, like, like lips rubbing together when I'm like walking or this isn't fine or, or my clitoris. That's why I'm not having orgasms the way that other people do. That's why things don't feel good is because I have an enlarged clitoral hood and like, okay, like there's so many things now, you know, it's like, this is my mind is like, (laughs) 
stuff. There's lots of stuff. And people are doing all sorts of stuff. Like I, you know, kind of touched on some of the anatomy. Uh, you know, I mean, we can do liposuction to the mons if that's something that is concerning to you. Some people feel like their labia majoras are too big. And so sometimes people do liposuction to that. Sometimes people feel like their labia majoras aren't big enough. So it's not kind of nicely tucking their labia minora in. And so sometimes people are doing fat grafting to that. Um, there's sort of all sorts of things that you can do. I don't personally touch anything like on the inside of the vagina. I feel like I'm reserving that for my OB colleagues. Um, but all the external stuff, you know, there's, there's lots of options. People are getting more creative and we're really expanding the field because we've really just started to talk about this in the last like 10 years. So. I'm yeah. <laughs> this is all new. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I just need a minute to kind of like process it all. <laughs> I'm like, that's crazy, but I'm glad that we dive, we dove into that too, because I think it's true. I think that there's two sides. It's people don't know what you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, we think it's going to be a quick fix to something that there's these two sides, right? Like is lipo a quick fix to our dream body? It's like, well, it could be, but it also takes a lot of work. And am I living in a sense of like where I'm uncomfortable with I where how I feel as a clitoris owner? Like, and I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff that on the male side that they could probably do too. I'm just like, mm-hmm. there's a whole world of penis changes I'm sure they can make. So live your best life is all I'm saying, y'all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the goal is just to feel good about yourself. So, Yeah. Cool. I love it. I'm, I don't have any questions. No, I'm good. Thank you so much for this. This is always awesome. Megan, why don't you replug yourself where people can find you give, give the spiel again, and then we'll close it out. Yeah. I'm Dr. Megan Drevisrat. Say that one three times quickly. And uh, my main social media is Instagram. My handle is Dr. Megan MD. Um, I'm also on TikTok, although not as much as I probably should. And my website is www.drmeganmd.com. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Thank you guys so much. Yeah. As always, if you guys have questions or you want us to do another episode on something else with her, like just send us messages. I know so many people were super excited about the launch for the, the breast episode. So many people have been messaging me. I'm like, it's coming. Just wait. Yeah. And I, I love answering patient questions. Like I'm known to go Perfect. on Reddit and just answer patient questions. So if there's anything you guys want to send my way, I'm happy to talk to people. Awesome. So, yeah. Love it. Cool. So much. All right. Thanks y'all. Cool. Thank All you. right. You guys.